We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on the Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we'll talk about U.S.-China relations, China's role in Africa, and the new Cold War. We're joined by Dr. Ken Hammond. Dr. Hammond is a professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University. He's the founding director of the Confucius Institute at New Mexico State University and he's an organizer and activist with Pivot to Peace. Dr. Hammond, welcome to The Socialist Program. Always glad to be here. Ken, you and I have discussed U.S.-China relations. We were anticipating what might come next after Biden succeeded Donald Trump as president. We did a seven-part series, a marathon series, on China's foreign policy since 1949 when the People's Republic of China was created, when the Communist Party took the leadership of the country. We've had a lot of discussions about China. Today, we want to look at U.S.-China relations, the new Cold War, so-called, the big picture. But I want to start first with the headlines that were pretty sensational, pretty dramatic, that would, if they were true, indicate that China's on the march in Africa, colonizing Africa. And one of the headlines, I think it's, you know, typical very big, very sensational, unable to repay debt, China seizes Uganda's only airport. And then there's a question mark at the end. I don't know if most readers will notice the question mark. The Ugandan government said, this is not true. The Chinese foreign ministry said, it's not true. Then the U.S. media had headlines that said, China forced to deny rumor that it had seized the airport. Anyway, did China seize the airport? No, China has not been seizing airports or other kinds of ports or any other kinds of facilities in Africa or anyplace else. This kind of story appears from time to time, but it's not grounded in any reality of what China is actually doing. This particular situation in Uganda seems to have involved some domestic political disputes within the country and some figures within the Ugandan government, I think probably trying to put a little heat on some of their political rivals, contrived a scenario in which if Uganda were to default on its obligations to repay a $207 million loan to China, which had been extended to help update, modernize Entebbe Airport, that at some point in the far distant future, there might be some intervention on China's part to try to straighten that situation out. But nothing in what has actually happened and nothing that's in the terms of the agreements between Uganda and China has anything to do with China seizing an airport. It's the sort of thing that is denounced as being baseless, but that's in this instance entirely correct. It's a made-up 
story and a potential scenario that's still something like 25 years out in the future, if it could ever occur at all. Let's talk about what China really is seeking in Africa. And of course, this would go for Latin America or its investments in Asia or anywhere. Let's just talk about the economic model that China is pursuing with its investments. Certainly, one must come to the conclusion that China, even if it has a policy of international solidarity or support or sympathy or friendship with other countries and peoples, and certainly that was the case in China. China was a major player in the so-called third world, a major player in the non-aligned movement that took shape in the mid-1950s with the Bandung Conference in Indonesia. Even if that were to be true, China has a self-interested investment policy overseas because, of course, the primary goal of China, its top priority, is to make sure that the 1.4 billion people who live in China, one-fifth of the world's population, can eat, that they have food, clothing, and shelter. And it's an industrializing economy, a modernizing economy. It needs minerals. It needs resources. It needs energy, of course. All of that can't come from within the territory of China. But when you look at the patterns of China's trade and investment policy, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the Belt and Road Initiative in a minute, and you compare it to what the European powers, the United States, Japan, when you compare the major capitalist countries, the former colonizers of Africa, with China's investment policy, it's really quite different. But I think, again, if Americans are getting their news from the American media or these kind of sensational headlines, they won't know the difference, the distinction. And in fact, the colonizers or the former colonizers are the ones protesting the loudest about China's so-called colonization policy in Africa. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that we need to understand what the historical nature of Western colonialism was, how the various empires, the British Empire, the Dutch, the French, the Americans, for a while with the Philippines and Puerto Rico and some of their other uh, far-flung possessions, how those relationships were structured, because that's the big contrast with what China is doing today. In the classic period of Western colonialism, the 19th, early 20th century, Countries that were incorporated into these colonial empires were integrated into larger economic structures centered on the home country, centered on, let's take the British example, centered on Britain. Britain was the industrial manufacturing center, the place of factories and industry and modern technology. And all of the various colonies were subordinated to that focus. So they became centers for the production of various kinds of raw materials, which were then shipped back to Britain, processed there, manufactured there, turned into industrial products, which were then shipped back out to the colonies where they received favorable trade terms. And uh, the colonies served both as sources of raw materials and as outlets for manufactured goods. That's a very basic and somewhat schematic rendition, but it captures the essence of that relationship. What's different in how China is pursuing its development projects is that China's interested 
it's also interested, and, and exactly as you say, this isn't a philanthropic program. This is not a great global giveaway. This is a program that is designed to help China develop its domestic economy to improve the livelihood of its 1.4 billion people. But it's being done in a way that also seeks to foster the development of local national economies in partner countries all around the world. And that's the difference. Those countries aren't being subordinated as just sort of you know minor cogs in the Chinese productive system. They're being developed, they're being given the opportunity to develop in their own right, to develop their own industry, their own domestic productive capabilities. And that's going to benefit China because they'll be able to trade back and forth. That'll be a long-term developing relationship. But it's also beneficial to the overall, the well-rounded development of of national economies in partner countries for these Chinese programs. And that's a very different approach. It's a very different relationship than what was structured into Western colonialism. Again, for our audience, let's go back for a moment to the Berlin Conference of 1884. If you look at a map of Africa in 1883 and compare it, or let's say 1882, and compare it to 1902, like 18 years after the Berlin Conference has taken place, what you notice is that all forms of African self-governance, with the exception of Ethiopia, vanish during those 20 years. So the European colonialists gathered in Berlin in 1884. Oddly, ironically, by the way, AFRICOM, the Pentagon's African division, also was based in Germany. I don't know. <laughs> they met in Berlin. They talked over who was going to take what from Africa. So they took the map of Africa and they said, well, Britain will get this part of Africa and France will get this part of Africa and Belgium will get this part. The Portuguese, Germany, every one of them were taking a part of Africa. There was eventually those countries went to war over who is going to dominate Africa and Asia and Latin America. That was called World War I. That was an inter-imperialist rivalry for, as Lenin said, for the redivision of the world and the redivision of the world's colonies. But in 1884, they weren't at war. They were at a table together, peacefully dividing Africa. And then those countries, as you're pointing out, if Britain had possession of a particular country, a particular area, particular people in Africa, then all trade from that area or the extraction of energy or mineral resources was the possession of Britain. Likewise, with the other colonial powers, they had a monopoly. They monopolized together in a peaceful division the entire African continent with the exception of Ethiopia. And it's these same powers now who are crying crocodile tears, worried that Africa is about to become dominated by a colonial power, in this case, China. And, you know, when you think about just the sheer hypocrisy, double standard, obvious, you know, ridiculousness of their position, you can also take that to other issues where the imperialists, the colonizers or former colonizers, are trying to pull on people's heartstrings about the democratic rights of minority peoples, not only in Africa. Suddenly the West and the United States in particular, having invaded Afghanistan, bombed Libya, gone to war in Iraq, 
not once but twice, Muslim countries now cares about Muslims as long as they're in the western part of China, the Uyghurs. Anyway, let's just talk about the phenomenal double standard, which would seem on its face to be so, you know, we'd be obviously able to pull it apart, to refute it. But in the mainstream media, all of these arguments and ideas are, you know, just regurgitated. The media is like an echo chamber such that I would say that most of the American people, if asked, they would say, yeah, I, we, we have to be worried about China's treatment of Muslims or China's treatment of Africa. Anyway, I want to get your thoughts on that. Well, yeah, I think that the historical legacy of colonialism, not just the way that it operated, you know, when these colonial empires were in place, down until the liberation movement succeeded in freeing Africa from European colonial rule. But that legacy lingers on as well. You know, France, Britain, the United States continue to operate military forces in many countries in Africa, fighting within Nigeria or in Mali or in Chad. Of course, American and NATO intervention in Libya was a huge violation of African, the sovereignty of African nations. So this legacy lives on. And the idea that the United States or Britain or other European powers are sort of pointing the accusatory finger at China is kind of ludicrous because the effects of Western colonialism actually continue to linger on. The arbitrary construction of political units, for example, the country of Kenya, which, you know, there was no country of Kenya before British imperialism. And Britain sort of jammed together various pre-existing communities and said, you know, you're going to be British East Africa. When that becomes independent, the legacy of that arbitrariness of political definition continues to complicate political life for people in Kenya all the way down to the present day. So colonialism, European colonialism and its negative impact, its destructive impact on African societies and economies continues to linger today. The idea of then turning around and accusing China of neo-colonialism, of being the new colonial power in Africa, it just doesn't stand up to rational scrutiny. This example of the claims, these bogus claims pumped up by political rivalries within Uganda about China seizing an airport, they have no grounds in reality. And they're simply used, they're seized upon, you know, by various elements that are hostile to China. And I think it's worth noting that the original media reports outside of Africa about this came out of publications linked to the BJP, the Conservative Party in India, that there's a political agenda there, which isn't about serving the needs or the interests of the African people. It's about trying to bash China. It's about trying to demonize China and portray China in some negative light. But China has, the People's Republic of China has a long history of assistance to African countries going back to the 1960s when China was still struggling in its early stages of economic development itself, sending people to Africa, engineers, volunteers, workers of various kinds to construct the Great Railway in Tanzania and Zambia, to be involved in other kinds of infrastructure projects. And that kind of work now has revived and expanded, you know, with the Belt and Road Initiative and other activities that China is carrying on. You know, obviously, the Western media, the bourgeois media, the mainstream media will seize on any story that it can possibly utilize to portray China in a negative light, while completely ignoring 
many, many, many other stories that are about the development, the infrastructure, the educational opportunities. You know, China's not just investing in things like railways and highways and airports. They're building sports stadiums. They're contributing to hospitals. They're developing a lot of cultural infrastructure. So the things that China is doing, again, we're not trying to portray them as the great benefactors, as the great philanthropists. These are projects that China hopes will benefit them in the long run, will become part of a, of a global network of trade and exchange and development from which China is going to be one of the beneficiaries. It's a much more mutualist process. It's not just the, you know, the construction of a China-centric system that's going to only draw resources and benefits to China the way that European colonialism did. It's a much more interactive, I suppose we can even say a kind of dialectical relationship between China and the host countries for their programs. Rania Kalik here on Breakthrough News has a program called Dispatches. She interviewed and heard from African voices about China's role in Africa. She had a recent show, and I want to play an audio clip in a moment from it and get your reaction. One of the speakers talks about the fact that the United States has actually taken control of one of the three airport terminals in the capital city of Ghana. The Pentagon completely controls it. There's no Ghanaians working there. The U.S. doesn't have to come through Ghanaian customs. They have the run of the place. In other words, the U.S. has actually taken control of an African airport, at least one of the three terminals in Ghana. But the voice we're going to hear in this clip is Mikaela Erzgag. She is a researcher with Pan-Africanism Today and also with Tricontinental Research I want to play this clip. It's about two minutes long. She's talking about how Africans are perceiving and understanding the investment policy of China. Let's listen. You know, how, how would you characterize what China is doing in Africa? If it's not colonialism, what is it? So I would say, and I want to give examples of it, but I would say cooperation, participation, within a totally different framework, which I think we'll be able to talk about more when we look at the US's military presence on the continent and things like that, but it has a qualitatively different, um, different participation and manifestation on the continent. So one is we need to understand these accusations of colonialism come in the context of China becoming Africa's biggest partner. And I mean, not only economic partner, it's on all fronts, cultural, educational, environmental, right? It was quite recent, I think it was in 2019, the US, formerly Africa's top trading partner um, and largest source of investment was actually overtaken by China, right? And this was, I think between 2013 and 2019 are the stats. And during that time, trade with the US has fallen whilst China has risen. And accompanying all of that, if we go back to 2000, um, China, through the Forum of China-Africa Cooperation, known as FOCAC, established relationships with almost all African countries and has signed and established various agreements for trade, for education, for um, infrastructural projects that completely outpaces the U.S., right? I mean, some of the facts that I think is important to throw out is that they're, they've been building, China's been building, you know, 6,000 kilometers of railways, 20 mm. ports, 80 large, you know, power facilities, and not just any power facilities. They've been pushing more and more for both from the Africa and China side for um, 
renewable energies. So, for example, we have hydroelectric power plants coming up, such as in um, Nigeria, they have one. In Ghana, there's one. Uh, we also have huge in investment in uh, technological transfers and generally bolstering telecommunications, where we've seen Ethiopia and Kenya hugely benefit uh, from the kind of easy and cheap technology uh, that has been coming from China. So, Ken, what's interesting to me about this is that if China's offering a better deal to the African countries for investment, for the building of infrastructure, for technology transfer, so that it's a two-way street, not a one-way street, it seems to me, and this is what I really want to get at, this is a direct challenge and a threat to the United States. The United States created at the end of World War II the United Nations, the World Bank, the IMF. Those were the three legs for the new world order whereby U.S. imperialism, U.S. capitalism would become, you know, the dominant hegemon in the world. They would take their former defeated enemies and allies and bring them together. So Japan and Germany, Italy, and Britain and France were all brought together as junior partners to U.S. imperialism. Rather than having a war between the imperialists, the U.S. basically said to them, look, we can unite, we'll give you market share, we'll let you have part of Africa, part of Latin America, part of Asia, we'll let you regrow and become rich again, we'll let capitalism in your country stabilize, and in return, you'll just you know, be our junior partner. It'll be a united front against independence movements, a united front against the Soviet Union, against the socialist camp. That was the deal. Now, China, having experienced in a way the same thing Africa experienced, not exactly the same, but China, too, had been taken over by these same colonial powers. The Chinese call that the century of humiliation, when China lost sovereignty and control over its own land and labor and resources, that China would come back to Africa and offer Africa a different way of doing business. And so we know there is this thing called the debt trap or structural adjustment program imposed by the IMF, where the IMF says to indebted countries who are indebted because they're poor and they're, they're poor because their wealth was taken to the Western colonial powers. And they'll say to them, look, we'll extend credit to you But if you don't pay your debt on time, if the market goes south, if you don't have enough collateral, then you're going to, say, give over state government-owned enterprises. You'll privatize them and let our companies in Western countries buy them up, which is exactly what happened under structural adjustment. And by the way, 86% of the globe was under IMF structural adjustment programs when the Soviet Union and the socialist camp collapsed, when that alternative place where trade and aid could take place in the world was gone. And so China's coming and saying to all of these formerly what we might call third world countries, a different deal. And they have now an alternative to the slavery, the debt slavery from IMF. That's a direct challenge to the domination of the post-World War II U.S.-dominated capitalist order. Anyway, it seems to me that that's a real problem for American imperialism. No, I quite agree. I think that 
China has been very conscious of, you know, as the relationship between the United States and China, the relationship between China and the Western capitalist world has been changing over the last decade or so. China has been very conscious of the fact that they cannot be reliant, dependent upon the sort of benevolence and goodwill of the United States and, and other Western powers. And in fact, that China needs to be not self-sufficient, but self-reliant. It needs to chart its own course. And I think that they've been very creative, very innovative in going about this, in creating institutions, their own China-based, Asia-based institutions for financial investment, for the mobilization and deployment of capital resources. The whole Belt and Road Initiative is designed to create infrastructure and relationships of trade and exchange, which are not under the umbrella of Western capital, which are not dominated by the interests of the United States and the other advanced capitalist economies. And I think that that's, as you say, that's it's threatening, not in the sense that this program is going to somehow uh, uh, you know, invade or destroy or attack Western countries, but it's threatening because it undermines the ability of the United States and the other capitalist powers to dominate other countries, to control the economic fate of people around the world. You know, since World War II especially, but certainly all through the era of European colonialism, the Western powers got used to the idea that that the world was out there for them to exploit, for them to develop, you know, for them to extract wealth from. And of course, that built up the prosperity, the incomes, the standards of living of people in the West to a level far above that of people in the colonial and semi-colonial countries around the world. Now, China, which has itself embarked on a program of development, embarked on a program of modernization and industrialization, is sharing that process with other countries around the world in a way that is not subordinate to, not integrated within the American-dominated system. And so Western elites, especially American elites, view that as a kind of existential menace. And they feel that this kind of thing has to be stopped or it has to be slowed down at least. It has to be disrupted in whatever ways are possible, whether or not that's based on any actual substance. If you can, you know, release story after story after story with the same theme, the same tropes, the same ideas of, oh, look how badly the Chinese are behaving. It's essentially a projection, a psychological in a sense, but a political projection by the West onto China of the kinds of behavior, the kinds of activities that the U.S. and other colonial powers have pursued in the course of their efforts to dominate the world, taking their own experience and turning around and projecting that, this idea of the debt trap. Well, it's the United States, it's the World Bank, it's the IMF that have deployed debt traps repeatedly around the world. And now they turn around and they say, oh, look, China must be doing this because that's what we'd be doing if we were you know, relating to these other countries. So there's some interesting cognitive procedures going on here as the West views the world through the the sort of prism or the lens of its own historical practice and experience, even when that has nothing to do with what's objectively happening out there in China's developing relationships with other countries. I was looking at a document from the Council on Pacific Affairs, a Western think tank, not an organ of the Chinese Communist Party. 
And here they were comparing how China's trading and investing with Africa and how the former colonial powers and the U.S. do it. I want to read a couple of sentences to you. I think it's really worthwhile. And again, for our audience to recognize that this is not an entity that's coming from China. It's not an entity from the left. But here's what they write. Similarly, the West gives aid to most African countries with Egypt, Kenya, and South Sudan being the largest beneficiaries. U.S., Canada, Japan, and France all follow a program of aid known as tied debt. That's tied, T-I-E-D, debt. Essentially meaning that the money given to these African countries must be spent on each country's national companies, their own capitalist corporations, or that a percentage majority of these purchases must be made at each of those countries' companies. The ultimate consequences of a program where African countries are beholden to importing solely from the U.S., Europe, Australia, and Canada is that they are locked into a vicious cycle of being able to afford less than they otherwise would have at a globally non-competitive rate. In other words, these are these monopoly trade relations, creating an artificial hike in these nations' production prices. This current structure continues a cycle of poverty alongside other expectations of pressures for structural reform. That would mean those governments are also compelled to privatize their water or their health services, and sell them to Western capitalist corporations. Again, this is the Council on Pacific Affairs talking about why Africa, as our earlier speaker mentioned, is moving closer and closer to China, and why China is becoming Africa's principal trade partner, because it's really a better deal. I mean, it boils down to that. The Chinese want access to resources. They want to be able to have friendly relations with these countries, but they're not driven by the same capitalist corporate bottom line, how to maximize profit for each and every capitalist company. That's not how the Chinese economic model is working, either at home or internationally. No, I quite agree. I think that, you know, that gets to the fundamental question here, which is, the nature of economic development, if we want to call it that, pursued in the context of capitalism, its necessity of constant growth, of constant maximization of return on investment, of constant valorization of capital, uh, you know, this inexorable drive to maximize profitability, as opposed to China's model, which both at home where you know we've seen a lot of evidence very recently of China's commitment to a more equitable social distribution of socially produced wealth you know China is a different system it operates on the basis of different principles they are using market mechanisms in the course of developing their economy but they're not letting them run wild they're not simply having capital be the dominant force in the lives of the chinese people and as they reach out and as they are pursuing these programs and investment and exchange with other countries around the world those same principles are embedded in that program and so, you know, again, 
we don't want to portray it as some giveaway. You know, you just won the lottery. But it's a program that is certainly designed to benefit China, but also is of great benefit, as the commentator earlier, Ms. Erskog, was saying, that it's something that is clearly benefiting the people of Africa, of the different countries in Africa. We'll hear media reports and politicians pontificating about any little instance where there's a, a little bit of friction or tension or or some, you know, there's going to be problems. There's going to be corruption. There's going to be glitches in these systems. You know, that's because they're run by human beings. But whenever there's any tiny little deviation from perfection, that's going to be seized upon by the mainstream media to use as a way to portray China is the new exploiters, the new colonialists, the new imperialists. And it's simply that's driven not by an impartial, balanced assessment of the experience. It's driven by a political agenda that seeks to perpetuate and protect the dominance of of American imperialism in the global system. I think those are such important points, Ken, because, of course, China is a state project. You know, China is a state in a system of states. And so it would be ridiculous from our point of view, from the socialist point of view, to think that a state that even is led by a communist party or says it's a socialist state is somehow like a perfect entity, a pure entity, something that will only do wonderful things. I mean, states do all kinds of things, all kinds of compromises, retreats, that are not good, not good from the point of view of what human beings need. They are states. So there's no reason to have an idealistic or pure sort of filter when we're trying to understand politics. But China's operating on a different economic and investment model, not only internally, not only domestically, but also internationally. And this is reflected in the differences with the Belt and Road Initiative versus the IMF. And those are the two competing trends right now in Africa, also in Latin America, in Asia. The president of the African Development Bank said this about China. The phenomenal growth rate inside of China and the fact that hundreds of millions have been lifted out of poverty is an attractive model for Africans and not just the elderly leadership. Young, intelligent, well-educated Africans are attracted to the Chinese model, even though Beijing is not trying to spread democracy. We can learn from them how to organize our trade policy, how to move from low to middle income status, to educate our children in skills and areas that pay off in just a couple of years. The $2 billion credit line China extended to Angola in 2004 was used by the nation for railroad repair, road building, office construction, a fiber optic network, and oil exploration, all of which was possible because China does not follow the model of tied debt. That's the T-I-E-D debt, meaning... If Angola takes this investment, does this deal with China, it doesn't mean that Angola must now only trade with China. That's not part of the requirement. So again, this really is the opposite of what a neo-colonial policy looks like. Ken, I know time is running short. I want you to comment on that. And then I have one final question about the big picture with U.S.-China relations. Well, you know, I think that what you just said is, is very much to the point, but I, I also want to 
before we move away from this, I want to remind ourselves and our listeners, our viewers, that there's another dimension to all this as well. We've touched on a little bit, but that has to do with the military presence of the former colonial powers and of the United States in Africa. You know, China doesn't have an army in Africa. China has only one military establishment outside of the People's Republic. Now that is in Africa, it's in Djibouti. It's a small naval facility which was established there so that China could participate in United Nations operations against piracy in the Indian Ocean. That's the only overseas military establishment that China has. The United States, by contrast, has you know bases, troops, secret clandestine operations going on in dozens of countries across Africa, which we never hear about. You know, there was that one incident a couple of years ago where some special forces were killed in a conflict, I believe it was in Chad, and that sort of caught everybody by surprise. The media and most American people were like, what are you talking about? Now, of course, we haven't heard anything more about those kinds of operations because they, they want to keep those down off the radar screen and off the consciousness of the American people. But the United States, France, Britain, they maintain significant military presence in Africa. And that has an effect on the political environment there. You know, the idea that even with that huge military presence on the continent, China's trade with Africa has become the principal focus. Uh, China is Africa's biggest trading partner. The United States' role there is declining. I think it's fascinating that the benefits to be had from developing a long-term relationship with China are so clear and so straightforward that even with Uncle Sam and the U.S. Army kind of breathing down their necks, African leaders and African people are shifting their focus, shifting their primary commitments away from their former colonial masters to China as a significantly alternative model that can be not just, you know, sort of short-term beneficiaries in terms of, oh, let's build this particular project, but that reshape the nature of the economic relationship and the nature of development going on within African societies. So important. Again, you know, when, when Americans think about U.S.-China relations, they think Uyghurs, they're being, you know, the target of genocide. Hong Kong, the people have been denied democracy. Tibet, you know, what about autonomy or independence for Tibet? Taiwan, uh, what about poor Taiwan? A self-governing island, as it's frequently called now in the media, even though it's historically and is part of China. So we think about all of these kind of sort of sob story presentations. But when you get down to what the real essence of the U.S.-China rivalry is, it's about this. It's about what you just said. If Africa and Latin America and Asia can become free from imperialism based on a different model through the Belt and Road Initiative or other trade arrangements, rather than being under the enslavement of the IMF and the Western banks, the U.S. considers that to be a fundamental challenge or a fundamental threat, not because China is going to invade the United States, but it disrupts American hegemony and American domination. Now, last question, having said all that, when we look back 40 years ago, the United States liked China. The United States said yes to China when China wanted to integrate into the world economy. 
the United States said that it would defend China against the Soviet Union. The U.S. obviously knew that there was this schism between the Soviet Union and China, the two socialist giants that made up the socialist camp in the 1950s. It played one against the other. It tried to basically and did forge an alliance with China against the Soviet Union. And we'll have other shows where we can talk about what the significance of that is. But at that time, it was convenient and sort of opportunistically available as a geostrategic ploy for the U.S. to be the friends of China. The reason I'm mentioning this to people is don't think about Hong Kong or Tibet or the Uyghurs. Think about the geostrategic reality of U.S.-China relations and why it's changed, why the United States is now sort of preparing for World War III with China. It's not about these other issues. It's about the U.S. effort to dominate. I think back uh, to 1948. There was a split in the socialist camp between Yugoslavia, led by Tito, and the Soviet Union at that time under the leadership of Joseph Stalin. And when Yugoslavia was sort of cast out of the socialist camp, the United States loved Tito and they loved Yugoslavia and they allowed Yugoslavia to integrate into the world economy. And as a consequence, Yugoslav's economy grew. I mean, it really became a very prosperous country by European, Eastern European or Central European standards. But then as soon as the Soviet Union was gone, when it imploded, when the socialist camp was gone, the U.S. went to war against Yugoslavia, a war in 1995, and then the final destruction of Yugoslavia with a massive NATO bombing of the country in 1999, between June and March. My point being that when we listen to headlines or get the news about these sob stories about how the U.S. cares about freedom and democracy or minority peoples or Africa or African independence or the Uyghurs, think about the geostrategic reality that the United States looks at all of these different you know, parts of global politics from its point of view. And its point of view is from the point of view of imperialism and imperialist domination. If it could use Yugoslavia for a while, fine, and then destroy it later, also fine from them. If they could make an alliance with China, fine. But now that the Soviet Union's gone, the socialist camp's gone, and China is thriving and providing an alternative to Western imperialism, and especially U.S. imperialism, the U.S. wants to destroy China. That's the basic calculus of why there is a new Cold War. Ken, that was a long presentation on my part, but I'm going to give you the final word. Well, I think that that's absolutely correct. And it's that geostrategic conflict also reflects the deeper structural reconfiguration of global economic relations as well, because, you know, we hear the phrase China's rise a lot. And I understand the perception of that. But what we have to think about, you know, in a sort of longer term historical framework is that for many, many centuries, China was the most advanced, the most sophisticated economy in the world. And that changes with the Industrial Revolution and the ability of the Western countries to monopolize modern industrial technologies and build their economic power, their economic superiority, and their military and political power on that basis. And as long as they maintain that monopoly, as long as you know you could only find factories and modern manufacturing in France or Germany or Britain or the United States, even maybe Japan eventually, 
as long as that monopoly was maintained, the power of the West, the ability of the advanced industrial powers to dominate the world was preserved. But first with the Soviet Union, which begins its own independent industrialization program, and then as the colonial era comes to an end because of the bankruptcy of the colonial powers after their inter-imperialist wars, modern productive technologies begin to diffuse around the planet. And that has allowed other countries, China most prominently and most successfully, to develop their own independent autonomous industrial modernities. Because of that, the ability of the Western, the old core Western powers to dominate the world has evaporated. They can't do it anymore economically. They can hold on to the military power they built up on the basis of their economic superiority. But even that is going to fade. It's going to dissipate. Every time we hear the Pentagon, you know, shrieking hysterically about China's military development, even though China's military budget is a fraction of that of the United States, what we're hearing is exactly that fear of the loss of dominance, the loss of power, the loss of hegemony. That is not something that's going to change. That's not something that's going to be halted or stopped or thwarted. This is a basic structural reconfiguration of global relationships that's just driven by economic realities, by the material realities of this world in which we live. And to try to stop that, to try to thwart that, is not just counterproductive, it's dangerous. It's dangerous because it threatens the stability of the world, this new Cold War, it could turn into a new hot war, and that could be the revival of the threat of mass destruction for everyone. Much better if American politicians, American political and economic elites would try to find ways to work interactively, to work with China, to find a way to benefit from the growth and development that China is undergoing. But that doesn't seem to be the agenda for those in Congress or the White House or on the editorial page of the Washington Post or the New York Times. So we have a challenge as socialists, as people looking for a more progressive or more equitable future. We have a challenge of trying to raise consciousness about that. And I think that that's a task that's going to occupy us for a while to come. Couldn't agree with you more. That was Dr. Ken Hammond, professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University, founding director of the Confucius Institute at New Mexico State University, and he is an organizer and activist with the peace movement, Pivot to Peace. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back Tuesday. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.